Turn to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13. So I'd just like to ask if you've ever slept through something that was, like, really important. Uh, oftentimes when I think, through a, think about sleeping through something, I recall an event that took place when I was in college um, at the University of Oregon. I was going to fly back and go visit uh, some friends back in Minnesota. And um, I guess I didn't understand how rigorous all these uh, final exams would be. This is a little different than high school, right? And so I... I'm, I'm certain I set my alarm clock, and I remember telling a buddy of mine, make sure you wake me up so I can, uh, I don't want to miss my flight because I have this early morning flight. Well, sure enough, you know what happened. Slept right through it. I, when I do finally wake up, my flight is long gone. I'm like, ah! You know, you know how you have this adrenaline surge that just goes through your body when you miss something really important? And you probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe you missed a test, and you found out that your professor really isn't all that understanding. I'm sorry. You need to grow up. Welcome to reality, right? Like, oh, I'm going to fail this class. That's your problem. You might get an alarm clock. Or maybe you missed a meeting or you're late to something that was really important. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical sleep. It is healthy. I, I recommend it. Some of you probably need more sleep than you're getting, right? But there is something that is dramatically wrong when you've slipped into a spiritual slumber. There's really three forces that are work that are seeking to bring you to a place of spiritual lethargy. you got the world, its ideals, values, idols, rewards. You have your flesh, the residual aspect of your fallen nature that likes to live life independently of God, and it's all driven by the devil. These three are seeking to bring you to a place like to put you into a spiritual coma. Remember what Jesus said, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You need to know that Satan can't steal and rob you of eternal life because it is eternal and it is all of God. Your salvation is God's work, not yours. But Satan can rob you of your joy, peace, perspective, hope, peace that you're trying to look for in difficult situations. In fact, he's a master of it. And so when you come to the book of Romans and you got this great explanation of the gospel, Romans chapter 12 calls us to live lives transformed by the renewing of our mind, no longer conformed to this world, lives of worship, and really lives that are motivated by love. That is a major theme that you find in Romans chapter 12. In fact, last week, remember Romans 13, 8 through 10, we saw God's call to love-motivated living. But there's significant barriers to doing that. And that's why you have in verse 11 and following God's wake-up call. How do you and I live a love-motivated life in a sin-dominated world? And friends, I tell you, it's, it's really easy to just slip in onto autopilot and to live life, or at least try to, independent of God. Focus on yourself, Right? Um, it's kind of like, not only does the world encourage it, I mean, it's like, who, who really cares about God? Uh, do people pray? Does anybody read the word? Are there, are, is there importance to actually being in a worship service? I mean, we're living, even among Christians, like, you could think of any possible reason why you wouldn't join into a worship service. Anything could be more important than that. And that's where we're even moving as a culture, a Christian culture. And all of us, we face this kind of incessant battle. It's like this world, this culture, this media, it's trying to lull us into a spiritual sleep. 
love-motivated living becomes like a, a distant dream. And what it results is, is like an anemic faith, a complacent Christianity, and a spiritual lethargy. That is until we heed God's wake-up call, and this passage becomes like bread and butter. So how do you live a love-motivated life in a sin-dominated world? Well, first of all, look what the text says. You've got to be awake to reality. Look at verse 11. He says, do this. What is this? What he just called for. Always take Scripture in context. Romans 13, 8 through 10, is a call to love one another. You see that? Verse 8. It, it is to not do wrong to a neighbor, but it's to do right, to love them. And he says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. So he says, the time has come. It is not chronos, chronological time. It is kairos. It is a season. It's the era. Now is the time where Christians put Christ on display. We exalt him. We live in his strength and we love people. We have a love-motivated living. Now is the time to do that. He says, it's time to awaken from sleep. You see that in verse 11? So what's sleep? Sleep is kind of like that time of the state of inactivity. It's a loss of consciousness. It's a, a decrease of responsiveness to the events that are taking place. So last night when you were sleeping, did you know there was a lot going on? You just didn't know about it. You know why? You were asleep. That's good. That's probably why you're not sleeping right now, which is encouraging. But friends, spiritual slumber, not so good. In fact, he says, time has come for you to awake, to be vigilant, to be alert. And notice what he says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. You're like, time out. I kind of already thought that I was saved when I believed in Jesus. Now, am I not? When salvation is in the future? Well, actually, it's both. You see, when you and I place our faith in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of our sins. And it's remember, as we've been going through the book of Romans, he refers to it as justification, to be legally declared by God that you are right with him by virtue of your faith in Christ and his finished work, where God takes his just wrath and pours it upon Christ. Christ pays our sin. He is the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. He faces the full penalty of our sins. We believe in Christ. We go from spiritual death to life. When you do so, it's called justification. It's an aspect of salvation. But salvation also includes this present time of sanctification where you and I are being set apart to God to conform to the image of Jesus, that we look more and more like him, where holiness becomes a reality, where our infant faith grows to maturity. That's sanctification. But the final aspect of that is glorification. It's that future work where God literally brings us into his presence. And this all this residual aspect of our humanity and all that sin, it's all done away with and we spend and are given bodies that last for eternity that can experience the wonders of his joy throughout all the rest of time. So he says, in light of the fact that your salvation is near, and by the time that Paul wrote this, we're about 2,000 years in this. Friends, Christ is soon to return. And real soon, we're going to be with him. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of faith. Fix and focus on the future. Right now, what you're living, you're like the dot on an eternal line. 
Don't live for the dot. Live for eternity with him. You know, if you want to, like, uh, mow your yard and do so in straight lines, or if you're a farmer and you want to plow your field and you want those furrows to be straight, do you know how you do it? And this is probably, like, really important. This is like yard work 101. You might want to take some notes because you don't want to be the neighborhood embarrassment because you can't mow in a straight line, right? Let me tell you how you do that. You fix on a point out in the distance. So if you're mowing, you fix your focus on that post and you mow toward the post. You stay in a straight line. You don't focus on the little kids' toys that are in front of your lawnmower, okay? You're supposed to have your kids pick those up before you started mowing, but you, you focus on the fixed point. And if you do so, voila, man, your front yard's going to look like the masters right there, right? It's going to be awesome. Well, friends, that's how you and I live life. Fixed and focused on Jesus. Awake to reality. Wake up. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Have you guys heard of this uh, new watch called the Ticker? Uh, if, if any of you have this, after service, I want you to show me that you, you got this because I'd like to see one. But th- here's an example of one. This came out uh, last year, 2014 in April. They had all these advanced orders for this watch. And what this watch does, it gives you a dot matrix screen. It shows you how many seconds you have in life, okay? So it works on an algorithm based upon when they estimated that you should die, okay, if you're male or female and where you're living, et cetera. And, it, and you time it in there, and then it just works backwards. And so at any time, you can kind of look like, how much time do I have left? You know what I'm saying? And apparently they have this like funnel thing where you literally see like time slipping away. You, you can never regain the minute or the moment. I can tell that some of you really are going to get one of these, right? You got one of these tickers. And so it just kind of tells you how much time you have left. And you might think like, oh, man, that sounds pretty morbid. I don't know if I want to watch like that. This was invented by a 38-year-old Swede by the guy by the name of Frederick Colting. And uh, I did some research on this guy. This is fascinating. Do you know what this guy's job was before he's making all this money with these little watches? He was a grave digger. <laughs> so he's always thinking about these issues, man. Like, man. And so he comes up with this idea. And let me tell you why he does this. He actually did it as an earnest attempt to change his own thinking. And so, quote, the occurrence of death is no surprise to anyone, but in our modern society, we rarely talk about it. I think that if we were more aware of our own expiration, I'm sure we'd make better choices while we are alive. And that's why he calls the ticker the happiness watch. So you make the most of the opportunity. Not a bad idea. Because that's what the scriptures are calling for. You and I, wake up! Wake up to the reality. Now is the time for Christ to shine through the lives of his people. Now is the time for us to extend and express love to individuals. So friends, if we're going to live a love-motivated life in a sin-dominated world, the first thing we need to do is we need to awake to reality. Let me give you the second. You and I have to be at war with sin. I know that, oh, I don't really want to be at war with anybody. I'm a, I'm a man or a woman of peace, right? You better be at war with sin because it's at war with you. Look what he says in the text. Verse 12. The night is almost gone. The night of man's depravity and Satan's dominion. It's almost gone. The day is near. The day of Christ's return and his reign. Right now, Christ, Christ is reigning in the hearts of those who believe. But what's going to happen is one day he's going to reign over the entire earth. 
And so he says, it's soon to happen. The day is near. He says, in light of the reality of the return of Christ, verse 12, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, that lay aside, that's like, that comes across in English, like so gentle, like, I lay aside, I lay aside these flowers here and I just kind of set them here. But really it has the idea of like forsaking or renouncing. You might want to get the imagery of literally stripping off that which is wrong and evil and sinful. It's the idea of like repentance over the deeds of darkness. I don't want this anymore. He says, therefore, lay aside, strip aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the protective covering of a holy life that is found in relationship with Christ. But he says you've got to strip off the things that you were saved from, that God has actually rescued you from. And he says, let us behave properly. You see that? The, let us behave properly, verse 13, as in the day. And now he's going to actually start giving a set of sins. He puts them in three pairs, okay? And he's going to say, these are things that were rescued from. This is at war with your soul. You need to flee from these things, strip them off. And so he's going to start listing them off. And the first one he says, as he says, first of all, we're to behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. Okay? So carousing, this was a term that was used for uh, like a victory party for like either military figures or an athlete. And so they have this victory party, and so you have this great conquest, you do these wonderful things, and then they'd have this party, and you would just get inebriated out of your mind. That's the term here, carousing. It came to be used as like wild partying, sexual orgies, brawls, even at times with rioting. That's the term here. And the other he pairs it up with is drunkenness, where that is the intoxication that comes from the intake or the excessive intake of alcohol, where all of a sudden it leads to impaired judgment and and reckless living. And these two terms, carousing, drunkenness, they were also used in association to describe these parties or these celebrations or festivals of Bacchus, okay? And he is the god of wine. And so what a festival of Bacchus would look like is you'd have all these people, man, we're ready to party. And so they kind of have their little Mardi Gras deal and they'd be kind of dancing around in the streets, right? And it is wild and they are drinking, right? And so they are trying to get excessively drunk and then it all culminates with this party, which is just filled with just like about the vilest immorality that you could imagine. And that was what they were referring to. They would use carousing and drunkenness. And you could almost even in today actually put in the illegal use of drugs, in there. Anything that impairs your judgment and dulls your senses, makes you ambivalent toward God or just avoid him altogether. Friends, we've been rescued from this kind of life. These are the things we set aside. I was reading in World Magazine last year and they had, this is a, they kind of like all these like crazy things that happen in the world and they just kind of highlight them in these like little brief articles and this is really funny. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time, but it was funny when I read it. They have this German farmer uh, near Regensburg, and he had this runaway bull. And apparently, this was just a beast and a half, and they could not catch him. Okay, and so this bull got smart, and he'd like run around in the Bavarian woods, and he'd come out and wreak havoc on things. And so the farmer, he's trying to lasso him, and that didn't work. He's like, "That's it, man. I'm up in my game. 
And so he tries to tranquilize him, shoot him, okay? Well, you don't want to kill your bull, right? right? So he tries to tranquilize him, but that has no effect on this beast. Well, one of his neighbors, and a guy by the name of Werner Dekamp, is watching this, and he noticed that the bull would come out of the woods and eat from his bucket of grain that he had. He's like, ah, I got it. So when he comes to eat the grain, I'll just lasso him. But this bull's smart, and it didn't happen. But um, this guy wasn't too quick to give up, so he's like, all right, I know what I'm going to do. I know that the bull likes to eat my grain. So he not only had him had the grain in there, but he poured a whole bottle of vodka in there, okay? And the bull comes, kind of eats that up there, kind of like staggers off there. And uh, there's a big bull, so he's like, we're going to do this day two. And so the bull comes. This time he had mixed actually two bottles of vodka. The bull eats it up, and guess what? For all of you who are wondering if it's safe to wander around in the Bavarian woods, it is because they caught him, right? Because alcohol in the bull system, all of a sudden he couldn't run away, and he wasn't thinking clearly and wasn't moving like he once did. That's how alcohol works, friends. And for those of you whose lives have been scarred, either personally or in your family or extended family by alcohol, you know this is no laughing matter. What alcohol does, it, uh, it dulls your senses. It diminishes your influence for Christ. It, it distorts your ability to perceive reality and what's really important. It can destroy relationships and it brings about a deterioration of life. Now, the Bible doesn't say that you can't drink in moderation. It, does, it actually doesn't say that you abstain from alcohol altogether, although it's not a bad idea. But it always warns against drunkenness and carousing. Friends, you're to be under the control of the Spirit of God, not under any other substance, legal or otherwise. He says, friends, we've been... Saved from these things. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in, look at verse 13, sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Okay? And here's the idea of just unabashed lasciviousness, lewd sexual immorality. He says, no, you're not to be living like this. And it is really interesting, when you get to Romans 13, he's getting really personal. In fact, in these remaining chapters, he's going to address some very personal issues as per typical, as the Spirit of God would have the Apostle Paul write, he addresses where they're going in the wrong direction. The reason he's writing these things is because Christians were doing them just like they are right now. And he says, we're not to be involved in sexual promiscuity, having sex outside of, the, of, of a marriage relationship, and sensuality. Absolutely not. And so the whole idea of just taking sexual norms and morality as defined by God, and he should know what is best. He created humanity in his own image. You forsake those things, they're going to have consequences in your life. He says, I want you to have a love-motivated living. When you live for yourself and this becomes your pursuit, the whole idea of honoring Christ and living the Christ-centered life and loving people, that goes out the window because self has moved into the throne of your life. You know, a guy by the name of Mike Cosper in a re- recent book uh, was writing about an experience of trying to work with a younger guy in the church who was having some serious morality problems with his girlfriend, if you know what I mean, as well as uh, had a serious pornography problem. And so they got together and uh, he talked about you need to be focusing on your relationship with Christ. Let's try things like prayer. He gave him things like, like you need to put content monitors on your computer, commit less time online, maybe take that computer out of your bedroom, let's put it out in the public space. And by the way, if no one's at your apartment, don't bring your girlfriend there, okay? Just like stuff that's like common sense. 
But it's like when someone tells you, like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And he's like, Mike says, you know that young man, he agreed with everything. He said, yeah, I'm going to put these things in place. They're finishing up their conversation, and this young guy said, hey, are you going to go see such and such a movie that's out there? And like, Mike is like, what? And the, the film that he referenced is like this gritty film about gangsters, prostitutes, and strippers. And he had happened to see the trailer. He's like, this is a sexually charged movie. This is no place that you want to be. And he's like, look at him like, are you kidding me? And the young guy was like, what? It's just a movie, man. And he's like, what in the world do you think? And we just spent a whole hour talking about how you can reshape your life so you're not sinning all the time. And you're experiencing the joy of Christ. And you're going to go to a movie like that? And I'm like, oh. The kid goes, hey, those movies like that, they don't affect me. They, they don't affect me. And friends, that's kind of how sin works. It's always gradual. See these people doing these horrendously bad things, destroying their lives, others, relationships, sinning in some significant ways. That didn't happen like overnight. It happened over time, and it is a gradual process. You need to know this. Garbage in, garbage out. You put sewage into your life and your soul, it is going to come out. It can't help it. You can try to control it. You try to disguise it. You can put on a nice face and you show up at church. You see your little Christian friends. Garbage in, garbage out. Friends, we've been rescued from these things. And this whole pornography issue, man, it is just destroying lives left and right. I mean, we know this now. It can be documented. There's, there is, when you view pornography, neurological, hormonal, and neurochemical events that take place in your mind, and they get reinforced, and it's like they start like at a crack, and pretty soon you've got a crevice, and you've got a canyon that's been developed in your mind, and like these tracks that are like running. Now, praise God, through the gospel and believing in Christ, you can actually start reprogramming, and you can live differently through Christ. But if you think that pornography is just not a big deal, like, well, everybody's making this fuss of this, it's not a huge deal. You are sorely mistaken. The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers states this. Their study noted that 56% of divorce cases involved one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And here's the thing that's really sad as you read their report. After they go through the terribleness of, of divorce and just all that craziness and hurt and pain and the, what they do to the kids and then the, the future grandkids and these people that are so addicted to pornography and they watch how that was a major factor in the dissolution of their marriage, they just keep going back to it. They just can't help themselves. And if you think, huh, well, this is just a male problem. Boy, those guys need to get their act together. Actually, it's increasingly a female problem. Even as far back in 2003, uh, today's Christian woman did an online, uh, it's an online newsletter, they did a, a research project to find out how many of their readers, this is today's Christian woman, were actually intentionally accessing internet porn. And even back then, it was at 34% today's Christian woman. It's kind of like Dr. Pat Fagan of the Family Research Council when he notes this. Pornography corrodes the conscience, promotes distrust among, between husbands and wives, and it debases untold thousands of young women. In conclusion, he says, it is the quiet family killer. You see, we live in a society that says you can have sex, you can have intimacy without commitment and without responsibility. And we, we long, we want relational connection, we want relational intimacy. 
And sex is a, a celebrated gift in marriage. But God knows best. And if you think, like, well, I can engage in this, in this lifestyle, or as I get older, or I get out of college, or whatever, I'll, I'll live life differently, it is having its effect on your soul. And if you are a Christian, this is God's wake-up call saying, I have rescued you from these things. Now is the time to live differently. Sex out of wedlock, it appears to give intimacy, but really what it gives you is shame and division and distortion to your soul. You ever, like, watch something? I mean, it could even be like a TV ad. And you just feel like unclean. Like, ugh. You know what's going on there? It's the Holy Spirit of God saying, this has nothing for you. This is not who you are. You've been changed and redeemed because of Christ and your relationship with him. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that these four, they kind of all go together. You ever notice that? Drinking, carousing, sexual promiscuity, sensuality. You're living just to attract other people's attention. You have a sensual lifestyle. You ever notice how they all kind of go together? Uh, there is a lady by the name of Elena Bay Chang. She's been doing studies on alcohol and drunkenness among college students. Pretty interesting stuff. Actually, her, but several researchers, they refer to alcohol as liquid courage. And so, like in the case of like just females, for instance, drinking allows young women to... Act out being sexually assertive, carefree, and liberated, she writes. And what happens is they use drinking as an excuse for their immoral behavior. So not only does drinking kind of like sit down the guard, and now they're engaging in things that they, they know it is wrong, but they like do it anyway, but then they use it as an excuse. It's why they, I don't even know what happened last night with that guy or those guys. I don't. I don't uh, know why I got into a fight. Uh, that's why I missed class. And they blame it on their drinking. So it actually becomes an excuse. It's kind of like, well, that wasn't me. It was just drinking. And it's as if they can continue on. Friends, all of these things we've been saved from. And then notice something else that he says here. We're to wake up, behave properly as in the day. And notice at the end of verse 13, he says, not in strife and jealousy. Strife has the idea of this you fight to always have it your way. You're not afraid to ramp it up if it's not going in the direction you want. And so what you do is you do that. And you create all sorts of division. And you power up on people. And you make it clear that it's going to be my way or the highway. And there's going to be a price to pay, whether it be bickering or some sort of disagreement, if you go against what I want. And so he lists strife. And then he also puts jealousy, where you desire something or someone that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to another, but you want it. You know what these things do? They literally shred community. They splinter churches. They fracture relationships. You see, you're not going to be having a love-motivated life when you're always at war with people and it's all strife and jealousy for you. God is fundamentally changing us in our relationship with Christ. He wants us to set these things aside, strip them off, keep Christ at the center. And for Paul... He never lost sight of the gospel and what it means to be redeemed. Remember when he gives his testimony in 1 Timothy, in verse 15, he calls himself, I'm the foremost of sinners. You want the worst one of the bunch? He says, it's me. In Titus chapter 3, you might want to write these down, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, he says, you know what? For we once were foolish ourselves, we were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice. We were envy, hateful, hating one another. 
we, that's our life. But he says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He rescued us. And he did it not on the basis of deeds which are done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Lord. He renews us. He washed us. We once were malicious. We were living on our lusts. We were doing all sorts of bad things. But guess what? You've been rescued, washed, redeemed. We live differently. It is the gospel. Not only does he not want you living in that wreckage and all the implications for your life, he wants you to live for the glory of God. That's why he gives this wake-up call. Friends, I'll tell you something. Your appetites can be adjusted by the choices you make. You don't have to eat the drudgery stuff of this world. You can make different choices. The Spirit of God is calling for a life of holiness. You know what happens, though? We start to rationalize and we compartmentalize. We just put it in a compartment. Well, you know, at the Bible study with the gals or man-to-man or church, going to act this way. Catch me on a Friday night, might be operating on a different set of morals and ethics. Uh, April 20th, 2013, USA Today uh, ran this uh, report on uh, NYPD that did a drug bust, which had like this really unusual element. It's not unusual that they make drug busts. I mean, they caught these five guys. They had in their possession, they had 20,000 pills of oxycodone, had a street value of 460,000. They also had heroin and cocaine and a sawed-off shotgun that they happened to be caught with at the time that the arrest took place. But what was really surprising about this drug bust is they've been tracking these guys, and they would routinely text their customers, and they would tell them that we are closed for the Sabbath. And so they would like, here's one of their texts, quote, we are closing at 7.30 on the dot and will reopen Saturday at 8.15. So if you need anything, you have 45 minutes to get what you want. I'm like, yeah, because, man, we got the Sabbath coming up, right? We can't be selling you drugs then. We got the Sabbath. Now, we're like, something's wrong with that. Do you guys think there's something wrong with that? Well, okay. Is there something wrong when you compartmentalize your faith? Jesus wants to be Lord of it. Everything about you. Did you know that? Everything about your life. What you do with your time. What you do with your social life. How you function at work. And friends, you and I, we need to be at war with sin because it's at war with us. You've got to have a battle plan. You have to have a strategy. You want to be alert. You want to avoid potential problems and places and situations and people that get you headed in the wrong direction. Remember, bad company corrupts good morals. It does. Remember what Peter wrote? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. If you want to try to figure out, why is my life so fragmented? Why do I just feel this tension? Where's, where's God in all this? Where's my vibrancy in my Christian life? Let me ask you, are you abstaining from fleshly lusts? Because I can assure you, on the basis of Scripture, it's waging war against your soul. You need to ask for help if you're in a bad place. Go talk to a trusted friend. You need to reject passivity. You need to accept responsibility. You want to make any necessary adjustments, anything that needs to be changed, whether you're changing the channel, walking away, getting out of the room, moving, whatever it takes, you make the adjustment. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a, I met a lot of really cool people there. Uh, one of these seminary professors, a guy named Carl Laney, just... This guy was a stud, man. 
he like knew the word backward and forward. I, I love this guy. I'm super brilliant, sharp guy. And I remember, remember he was telling us in class one day, because he'd do a lot of traveling and speaking and writing books, writing lectures and talks. And he says, every time I go into a hotel, uh, the first thing I do is I actually remove the TV and I just put it in the hall. I'm like, whoa, that's weird. Why, why would you do that? And he's, he's like, no. And I always have like these projects that I'm working on. Like I set goals for what I want to accomplish. He went on to explain why he did that. And I, I'm like, I'm taking a note here. This is what it looks like when you take your walk with God seriously and you're at war with sin. You're going to draw lines. You're going to fight back. You're going to go strong in Him. Let me ask you, are you at war with sin? Is there anything in your life that might suggest that you're at war or are you giving in? Friends, if we're going to live a love-motivated life in a sin-dominated world, we've got to be awake to reality and we've got to be at war with sin. And then finally... Notice how this text ends. We have to be alive in Christ. Look what he says, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. The best defense is a great offense. And he talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's literally putting on. It is to invest time with him so that you and I are walking in his strength, in his peace, perspective, in his power where the Son of God and the Spirit of God are at work in our life, so we're not just giving in to all these temptations that are all around us. So he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're putting on Christ not because we're trying to hide something, but rather we are manifesting who we really are within, and we're living it out. Do you ever notice that, uh, like, in your yard you have these, like, weeds? Okay? And, like, what, let me tell you how you address them. You want to try to pick them out, but if you're like my backyard, you got there's more weeds than grass here. What am I going to do here? The best defense is a strong offense. And so you fertilize that St. Augustine grass so it will grow and, and be healthy. And fertilizer doesn't like work like instantly, but it works pretty quick. Let me give you fertilizer for your soul. How do you cultivate putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? Like prayer, reading the Bible, confessing and repenting of sin. Focusing on the gospel, being still, just before God, worshiping, serving, giving. These are spiritual practices that are like putting fertilizer. They're cultivating maturity and depth and strength to your soul, and you'll live differently. And that's what he's calling for here. It's kind of like police officers. We know police officers. We think, look at that. They got the bulletproof vest. Look at that. They're wearing a uniform. They got a gun. They got a flashlight. They got radios. They got a camera. They got it all, man. We know they're police officers because of the clothing that they're wearing, right? They should know that we are followers of Jesus because we have the character of Christ. And there is a love, a love for people, a love-motivated life that can be witnessed. We're not making provision for the flesh, that residual aspect of our fallen nature. We're walking with the Lord. So let me just give you a couple questions you ask. Lord, what does maturity in your son look like? in this situation of this relationship. And the second question he asks is, Lord, would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to live this way? Friends at Fellowship, this is the mission of our church. We want you to experience the goodness and the glory of Christ, to come to the fullness of maturity. Our mission is to glorify God by living out the life 
we have in Christ. We're living it out. A life of loving God, investing in others, following his word, engaging our world, experiencing life to its fullest. Because, friends, that's how we're going to live a love-motivated life in a sin-dominated world. On December 8, 2004, there was an event that took place when uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, Donald Rumsfeld, he was in Kuwait. He was addressing the troops, and he went over there with the intent of kind of like giving them a pep talk, you know. Here you go, guys. We're going to go for it. But what made this particular time so interesting and so memorable is that there was a young soldier that touched off a media firestorm with a simple question. As new cam- news cameras were rolling, Army Specialist Thomas Wilson, there's actually a picture of when this took place, of the 278th Regimental Combat Team, asked Rumsfeld, quote, this question, Why do we soldiers have to dig through local landfills for pieces of scrap metal and compromise ballistic glass to up-armor our vehicles? Clearly, Specialist Wilson and all his comrades felt like they were not being protected well. They felt vulnerable, and yet they're being sent into battle without the right protection. I'll tell you this. Our commander-in-chief, our supreme commander Lord, he's not left us ill-equipped. In fact, Ephesians 6 talks about that he's given us the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of faith, the helmet of salvation, and he has given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, so that we'll be fully equipped, that we can be fully alive. The question is, are you going to put it on? And that choice, by the way, is yours. So what will you do? Just imagine the consequences of ignoring this passage. For a minute, just think about it. What will this look like if you just allow yourself to slip into spiritual lethargy, personally, relationally, professionally, or in our church community? On the other hand, think of the possibilities of seeking God to empower you and I to put this passage into play. Personally, relationally, professionally, in our church community. And if you ever like wonder, like, huh, when is this struggle with sin going to be over? Either when you die or the rapture takes place. But the fact that you were struggling, like, I hate sin and I don't like this, that is always a really positive sign. The folks that I'm really worried about are the ones like, this doesn't affect me, man. I can watch this. I can do this. I can get plastered whenever I want. And it doesn't seem to really affect me in my spiritual life. I got great concerns. See, God has given us a great promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. You always have a way out. The question is, will you take it? Oftentimes when I read this passage, I think of uh, a guy by the name of Augustine, or Augustine, however you might like to pronounce his name. And in the 4th century, he was the Bishop of Hippo, which is now in Algeria. But really interesting, this guy, he, uh, Augustine had a Christian mother. Her name is Monica very devout woman of the faith, prayed for him all the time. But he had dismissed her Christian faith, felt like it was nonsense, I had no use for it. God was brilliant. He was recognized academically, very smart guy. But he just decided, I'm going to live life on my own and follow my own theories and philosophies, which he tried on different ones. Um, he had the live-in girlfriend, actually fathered a child through her. But while he was in Milan, he heard the preaching of a Bishop Ambrose, who was kind of a towering figure in the church, And he found himself unable to shake what he heard. And he writes about his experiences in a book called Confessions. I'll just read you a little bit here. He says, The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains, and suddenly 
I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, pick up and read, pick up and read. So I took the book of the Apostle, the book of Romans, and I opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eye lit. Not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism, not in indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. Romans 13, 13 through 14. I, never, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And for Augustine, who many believe was the strongest saint, an influential saint of the first thousand years, this was the text that led him to salvation in Christ. And for us, it brings us to the heart of the gospel and to the wonders of the grace of God. And see, friends, who we are in Christ is to guide us on how we live our life. So this is God's wake-up call. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage. How you just break through all the chaos and confusion of this world that we might see Jesus and what holiness looks like with clarity. And Father, I would like to just pray for anyone who has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus. Would they simply just pray with me now as they see Christ? Say, God, I turn from self and from sin. I want life. I want rescue. I want to know you. And so I place my trust and faith in you now. And Father, for the rest of us, may we not be in some sort of spiritual slumber, but we recognize that the time is short and the opportunity is now. May we live for your glory and do so in your strength. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name.